Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 9th, 2019, and this is episode 2466 of the Survival Podcast, 2466. It is Tuesday, that means it's time for a Just Jack show, that's where we take a single subject and we break it down and see what we can learn about it. Today's show is called Half Acre Homesteading, Part 1, The Garden. Um, I am completely up front in the show notes, and I'll be up front in the intro today, too. I called today's half uh, today's show Half Acre Homesteading because marketing. Because of marketing. It, it does deliver what it's promised. That doesn't mean it's not true just because it's marketing. But what I mean is when you use two to three words, you know, two words or a three-word phrase... And either the two words start with the same letter or the the, the first and last word in a three-word phrase have the same letter at the beginning. Uh, they sound good to the ear, and they're more attractive to people and more likely to get them to click on a link and check out the podcast. Think of, like, Taco Tuesday, right? Taco Tuesday, half-acre homesteading, right? Stuff like that. So that's why we're doing that. So the only reason I really bring that up is you don't need a half-acre to do what we're going to talk about today. Dude, plenty of people are doing it on postage stamp lots, you know, a tenth, a twentieth of an acre. Uh, obviously, the more land you have, the more options you have, and the more you can fit. But I've often found that the most productive systems are on the smallest pieces of property because people then are forced to really make good decisions with everything that they, they do. The other thing is that when you... Uh, when you have more land, three acres like I do, five acres, ten, I mean, I think a lot of people think they need like 100 acres or whatever. And, man, I tell you what, it does have a lot to do with how the land's laid out. I looked at one property, and it was ten acres and a long, thin strip along the road. There was like a farm just in from it, and then it was this long, thin strip. And, I mean, when you were standing at the property line, even though it was wooded up against the farm that was the other guy's property, you could look through and see the road. And that didn't seem very big at all. It was long as heck, but it just didn't seem like a lot of land. I walked one property, it was pretty much a 10-acre square. It will wear your ass out. I'm telling you, 10 acres is a lot. A half acre to an acre will wear you out if you if you maximize what it can do for you. Of course, things are um, subject to climate and solar aspect and all types of things you might to get a really good even tenth of an acre of productivity uh, for gardening you might need uh, half an acre to get that piece who knows but this will work for everybody if you're on a big property I want you to think about the fact that everybody who wants to homestead anyway not everybody does but if you do should have like this uber productive zone one and for a small property owner that might be pretty much the whole property for somebody who owns 100 acres, it might be a half acre of that where you do your intensive management. Because this is what happens. When you do that right, the majority of what you get back from your ROI comes out of that zone one. And that's a permaculture principle. We'll be uh, digging into that deeply today. But I, I was like, I got up and bit off more than I could chew today, guys. I was like, I'll just do this half acre homesteading show. And I started putting it together on gardening. I went, I'm going to do part one on gardening and part two on you know meat production and stuff like that. And we'll talk about preserving the harvest of it today. We'll probably do one of these in this series on cooking. 
with preserved food uh, and kind of rounded out there, I'm thinking, in the end. But this might turn into four or five shows because uh, it is an in-depth topic. And my goal in this series is to give you the tools, like I did earlier with the permaculture series. Now I want to just take it to straight-up homesteading to give you the tools that if, you, uh, if you've begun this walk, to take it further, and if you haven't, the confidence to start. To, to, to do something that we talked about a lot in the first year or two of this show. It was a concept that we talked about so much that uh, another couple actually built a whole podcast on it called The Self-Sufficient Homestead. It was uh, Johnny, Max, and the Queen. And it was From Home to Homestead. You see, the problem that we have in America today is people think the way they're taught to think instead of the way that they are innately designed to think. Uh, we think of as our, our homes as our biggest asset. But the reality for most Americans, their home are their biggest liability. Uh, they lose their job for two months, and the thing that's going to destroy them more than anything else if they're a mortgage holder is the inability to pay for their home. It doesn't have to be that way. We talk about a lot of ways to mitigate that, but one is to change the way we think about where we live in the first place. Instead of a place that's bragging rights, instead of a place that will get us a, a spot on a house hunting show on HGTV or something like that, we should think about uh, our homes the way that our grandparents and our great-grandparents did. A place that was designed to be a safe place for us and our families, to raise our families, to grow up. And it was designed more than anything else to give back to us, to actually have an ROI beyond, hey, one day I might sell it for more than I paid for it. That's the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about today. We're going to start off with the, the, the most rudimentary thing in the mind of people when we talk about homesteading. There's a lot of other things, but the garden. I'm actually going to talk to you about the primary things you can get from a homestead today as well, but then we're going to just key in on kind of the veg vegetables and a little bit on fruits maybe. We'll do all that in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of day number one today, Ready Made Resources. The company says what it does and does what it says. All the resources you need for your homesteading and for your prepping. All ready to go on their website at readymaderesources.com. They got it all, guys, from the practical to the tactical and everything in between. You'll find it all at Ready Made Resources. Again, the company does what it says and says what it does. And a very loyal sponsor has been with us over eight years. Next up today is a, a, a sponsor that's kind of sort of back. Um, I actually gave these guys free sponsorship for two years to support their efforts, and they came to me this year and said, we want to come back as a paying sponsor. And this is the Free State Project. Um, <clears throat> something that I've tried to push into this show, you know, beyond homesteading and preparedness, from the very beginning is liberty. To me, there is nothing more precious in the world than liberty. Even if you bring to me things like, well, your family, and liberty is the primary way by which I am able to ensure that I can care for my family. Liberty is the most important thing I hope to leave behind some piece thereof to my, to my children and to my grandchildren. Liberty is everything. And liberty has been trampled. The Free State Project is a group of people that came up with an idea about 10 years ago. Let's get as many people as we can to move to a little bitty state with a high level of representation, and let's drag it to freedom, whether it wants to go or not, kicking and screaming across the line. That's what they've been working on for a decade now. You can be part of it. You need to learn more about this because it's worth your time to learn more. You may find a whole new life waiting for you with the Free State Project. You can find them at freestateproject.org. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into it. I do have a couple of announcements today. One I forgot yesterday, and it's... 
kind of important if it's going to happen at all. How would you like to if you now this is really for people in the Dallas Fort Worth area. You can come from wherever you want, but this is a one day thing. How would you like to come spend a Saturday here at Nine Mile Farm? Here's here's what happens. You you come here. We're going to throw some shade cloth up my aviary. That should take about 15 minutes. Uh, we might pull some uh, a couple uh, grow beds off of my smaller pond. That should take 30 maximum. I tell you what, if it takes more than 30 maximum, we're done. All right. And the rest of the day, this is what you get to do. You get to hang out with me and hopefully some other really cool people from the TSP audience. We're going to cook for you and feed you something like, I don't know, barbecue baby back ribs. That sound good? We'll have some good quality adult beverages, and we will hang out mostly in the pool because it's freaking hot outside. It's just basically a Saturday afternoon pool party. And what does it cost? Nothing. Uh, I've decided I want to do some of these. Maybe I did not give this one enough lead time. Maybe I'll... If it doesn't work out, maybe I'll come back and do another one. But right now, I'm trying to do this Saturday. I really do need to get that shade cloth up. And it's an excuse to do something that I want to do some uh, more of, which is just to do some things just to give to people uh, that are in the area. I know people want to meet other people in the audience. They want to hang out. Not everything I do here needs to be a paid workshop or even a workshop. So this is just to come hang out at Nine Mile Farm. Here's how you do it. Uh, you send me an email, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, with TSPC Hangout in the subject line. Tell me who you are and uh, tell me how many people would become, like if you're a couple or kids or whatever, just total number. And uh, when you hear back from me and say, okay, I got your email, here's the instructions to get, here's how the directions to get here, and here's the final times, and I think it's going to be like 10 to 5 is probably what we're going to do. So a little bit of work we're doing we can do before it's blazing hot out, um, then then you're in. If you email me and you don't hear back, reach out to me some other way. I've been having some email issues lately, so who knows? But that TSPC guys, that's the most important thing in any email you send me. And you know, if it's said three or four people want to do this, we'll do it. But right now, I put it out yesterday, uh, but I didn't put it on the show. I just put it out on uh, MeWe and in Twitter, and I, I didn't hear from anybody yet. So. Uh, again, I know it's the middle of summer, it's short notice, but if uh, you know we get uh, three or four, five people want to do this, we'll do it on kids. I leave it to you to decide if your children are old enough and mature enough to be here under the circumstances. It will be mostly adults. Um, the, there is some rules, and, and those include, like, you must supervise your children. And we have had stuff go on here before. We've had people bring their kids, and we have had kids that were great, and we've had kids that were not so great. We had one time we had kids throwing sticks like spears at my ducks, chasing the dogs and the ducks around, upsetting the dogs. They took the floating ball that the chlorine goes in out of the pool and used it as a soccer ball, even though there was a soccer ball, and broke it. Uh, it broke several lights. This was one thing with one small group of kids. Uh, that will not, <laughs> that is not going to be okay. Um, and uh, so as long as you think that your kids are going to be all right and you know that you have to look after them, especially around the pool and stuff like that. They are welcome to come. Uh, there will be beer and, and what have you, so if that bothers you, your kids don't bring them. Otherwise, send me an email. Come on, hang out uh, Saturday afternoon, this coming Saturday the 13th. Uh, next up, YouTube Channel of the Week. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to form. I'm going to want to do a little mini segment every day of the week and get on a regular schedule with it. And YouTube Channel of the Week is one. I don't know if it's going to be Tuesdays. It might not be on Mondays. Uh, but our channel of the week this week is called The Dollar Vigilante. Uh, this is a free market anarcho-capitalist newsletter, a website, and video podcast. They have over 25 million views on YouTube. 
This is one of those groups I don't agree with every single thing they say. I think every once in a while there's a little bit of tin going around the head into a hat. Um, but overall, I really like this channel, and they're one of the channels that are squared away enough to have a, an intro video that says, here's what we're all about. So instead of me telling you about it, let me go ahead and play that intro video for you right now. Are you sick and tired of the state and the central banks trying to destroy every aspect of your life? Are you awake to the fact that the dollar is on an unstoppable trajectory towards total collapse? Do you just want the ability to live your life the way you want, without the globalist elite interfering, stealing your hard-earned cash, or threatening to throw you in a cage for doing things that would never hurt anyone else? My name is Jeff Berwick, freedom fighter against the two greatest evils raping the world today, and I'd like to welcome you to the Dollar Vigilante. On this channel, you'll see the latest news, information, and analysis on the issues that matter most to you in these difficult times. Often controversial and always entertaining and informative, we'll discuss topics such as the establishment's war on cash, the latest news in the political world, and what it really means to your day-to-day -day life, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, gold, silver, and other precious metals, alternative topics related to freedom, libertarianism, and anarcho-capitalism, expatriating and living a much freer lifestyle, how to protect yourself from the collapse of the dollar, and much more. So if you're looking for freedom and to protect your finances and your family from the economic devastation the globalists have planned, join more than 70,000 others and subscribe now. I look forward to fighting this fight with you. So if you like what you hear, go ahead and check these guys out. Consider subscribing to them. If you do, you'll join about 225,000 other people who have subscribed to the Dollar Vigilante. And uh, I, I really recommend that you check out one video of theirs in particular. And I'll have a link in the show notes for you today about this. Um, have you ever made the case that all action should be voluntary between individuals? Maybe you're not even an anarchist like me, just a just a, a, a real solid libertarian. And when you explain the role the government should and should not play in people's lives, what is the number one objection other than maraudes that you hear? What is the number one response you get? Move to Somalia. I've always thought that was stupid. I always thought that was the stupidest thing that a person could say. Well, here's what sold me on recommending this channel to you. I came across a video uh, where the founder of this channel said, If you want, that people told him if he wanted anarchy to go to Somalia, so he went to Somalia to show people what it was like and uh, to show how stupid their objections were. And, uh, he was able to do that. Also, learned some pretty interesting things. It's about a six-minute video. There'll be a link in today's show notes. Again, uh, I really recommend that you check this out. I think you'll enjoy it. Again, dollar vigilante. So now let's dig into the, this topic. So. I want to start with just the general concept of homesteading applied to small properties and why it's really what this, I don't say this generation, but maybe the, the previous two generations of America is all about. So if we go back three generations, we're back to where most Americans still made their living either directly or at least indirectly connected to agriculture. The majority of people in this country uh, were farmers. And if they weren't you know, primarily farmers, they had some 
level of either direct connection, indirect connection, or often they were, you know, kind of what we'd call a gentleman farmer today. Maybe they had a, a piece of land and they had a job in town, but they grew 40 acres of corn or something like that a year. Uh, but most people were on the farm on some level, one way or another. And as society changed rapidly, and specifically with uh, the development of modern infrastructure, that you know, got rid of things like the milkman. I know the milkman was still bouncing around a little bit in the 70s and even early 80s, but the milkman's really been gone in the way that we thought of the milkman since they came up with refrigeration in a vehicle, a car. Once we didn't need a horse-drawn buggy and the milk would last uh, through processes and refrigeration, the milkman kind of started to go away. As that whole thing went away, and more and more people, especially in the post-World War I and then post-World War II years, moved into what have become the suburbs. The people of this country, in conjunction with war efforts from things like Victory Gardens, but even without that, knew what they were giving up. Yeah, I'll move to this th nice little three-bedroom air-conditioned house in some pretty neighborhood in the 50s. But I grew up on a farm, and I, I want some land. So the suburbs were designed, and if you look at the suburbs being built today, a lot of them are built with like really tiny postage stamp lots. But if you look at the houses that were built from, let's say, the 30s up through the 60s, uh, an average lot size was somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, a quarter to half an acre. That was pretty average. And your houses were built with relatively small kitchens, but great big dining and living room areas. And the house would actually be relatively modest in square footage, but the, you could tell when you walk into one of these older houses that if something small is the bedrooms. The place where the family hung out and lived and ate was kind of the bigger area. The kitchen might have been smaller because the kitchen was just for cooking, unless it was an eating kitchen, right? And that was kind of the way that places were built. And they were built to be a direct reflection of life on the farm in a new way. Everybody could have a little garden and a fruit tree and the neighbors right over there. And it was designed to be that. And so the concept that we have in our heads that if you want a homestead, you need to move back out in the country um, isn't exactly right. It's not exactly wrong because... The further you get away from people, the less people you have complaining about some of the things you do and codes and regulations and HOAs. But assuming you can find a place where most of the stuff that you want to do is okay to do, it actually works really good in the suburbs for a lot of reasons. And as we look at that, what you want to do, if you, if you, if you feel like homesteading's for me, I want a homestead, what we need to ask ourselves is what can a small property or a small piece of a big property give us? What can we get from it if we do the right things? And there's probably more, but I, I've broken it down to five primary things that we can obtain from a piece of property. One is fruits and vegetables. And I would say any food substance that grows and doesn't have a face would fall under this. So anything that you can eat that doesn't have a face and a beating heart, that's fruits and vegetables, right? So you can say is, is a... Is a mushroom, a fruit, or a vegetable, or a fungus, it's, whatever it is, it falls in this category. The next one is meat and protein. And it, it has more challenges. You know, if you have, if you have 40 acres of uh, pasture, it's, it's not a big thing to raise enough cattle to make a little bit of money, create a great big tax deduction, and eat all the beef you want. But if we're going to be doing this in backyards instead of broad acres, then we have to put a little more thought into it. 
But even a really small property can produce proteins and meats for us from things that have a face, whether the thing directly has a face, like <coughs> oh, quail, or if the thing is indirectly from something that has a face, like let's say a chicken egg. Or let's say if we have the ability to milk an animal and we have milk and cheese and cream, uh, then that would fall in this category of meats and proteins derived from animals, things with a face, right? Um, next is the ability to provide us herbs and medicines. Now, I know that I said fruits and vegetables, they didn't have a face and grew in the ground. The reason I break out herbs and medicines separately is that they do not provide us with calories, not in a significant level. Herbs are either somehow medicinal or somehow uh, a nutrient density add-on or something that flavors the food, be it with or without a face in the beginning. Right. So I kind of pull those out separately because there's so many things that they can do for us beyond just uh, being able to grow a potato and make a french fry out of it. The next is fibers and materials. Um, and, and you might think that this is a lot less significant on a urban homestead than, let's say, a big, broad acre homestead where you could be growing timber crops, for instance. And you would be right, but there's still so much that can be done from a standpoint of materials, fibers and materials, whether they're building materials or craft materials. Um, Here's an example when we get to that subject uh, in a future episode where we might talk about, you know, we talked about growing hedges yesterday. We grow a small hedgerow of willow, and if we manage it right, we can produce a significant amount, even from a pretty small area, of, let's say, artist charcoal. So charcoal that an artist would use uh, for drawing and sketching. Uh, really a unique niche item, isn't it? And it's a material. Which leads me to the final thing that you know any one of these things might be derived to do or some other creative function stacking like a tiny house that gets rented through Airbnb or something like that is income. So to me, when I look at homesteading, almost everything falls into one of those five categories. Fruits, vegetables, fungi, things like that. Meat and, and, and animal-derived protein sources uh, and fat sources. Uh, herbs and medicines, fibers and materials, or income of some sort, whether that income be direct in the form of uh, cash outlay in return for something, or whether that income be in the ability to do barter with someone that gets us something that would have cost us money and now doesn't, and it, it stays in that, uh, that voluntarist economy. That's what I'm looking for out of a homestead. But I think the place that most people start, and it's because we do have to eat every day, is with gardening. And there's a lot of reasons, and uh, chief among them is there's some, it's something that most people can do, and it's something people are generally comfortable giving a shot. And I can tell you why people generally start here versus uh, animals, things with a face. Um, and it's probably not what you're thinking. But when it comes down to it, when you talk to people, it is primarily the number one reason that people start with a garden. So the truth is... Something like a small laying flock of chickens or a couple stacked cages of quail or a couple hutches with some rabbits in them will give you more ROI in calories and food quality than in general a small garden will. Now, you can put in a pretty big garden even on a pretty small area and produce more food than you can eat, 
But if you think about it this way, uh, a pair of uh, doe rabbits and one buck can give you more meat every year than harvesting a very large meat goat once a year. Significantly more. Uh, even chickens. Let's say you had two chickens, right? They gave you on average two eggs a day. It's over 700 eggs a year. And you, you do almost no work. And then they become a composting component to feed your garden and things like that. Uh, quail, you can easily produce two, three dozen quail um, every six weeks. And if you stagger them, you could be doing that every two weeks if you really wanted to, with not a lot of work. So you can get a, a more rapid ROI. The thing about gardens is, number one, they're easier to automate. You know, we can set up drip irrigation on a timer and things like that. Uh, and if you screw up and a uh, corn dies or a bean dies or something, you don't feel as guilty as if an animal dies. So they, 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 people are more comfortable with, if I screw up the garden, I don't kill an animal. And then last, and, and this is really important in this whole line of thinking, is if I leave my house for a week to go on vacation in the summer and I've automated irrigation, my garden will probably be okay. And if anything, my neighbor can kind of look in on it and make sure nothing bad's happening and call me up if it is and I'll tell them what to do. Uh, when it comes to taking care of your animals, animals tend to make you a lot more anchored to a property, and we live in a very mobile society. So that's that's why people actually tend to gravitate toward the vegetative systems first. And it's important to think about, because if you want animals, you're going to have to think about how does this thing get cared for when I'm not there. When we get into the animal podcast, which might be next week, I'll tell you that on a lot of small animals, rabbits, chickens, quail, which are kind of best, or even ducks, you can automate a lot. You can automate a lot where at least you get away for a long weekend and you probably don't need much much attention. You may actually find that it requires less help from a third party than a dog, right? Not less than a cat, especially a litter trade inside cat is about, z I mean, zero work. But you might have to put more effort into finding a good dog sitter than someone to take care of your chickens if you fully automate everything. But there's a lot of ways to gardens. And there's a lot of ways. And I don't want to get into the individual techniques too much today because each one of those, there's been entire shows or series of shows on them. You know, we have wicking beds. We have keyhole gardens. We have uh, aquaponics. We have just straight-up in-ground gardens. I've even done shows on old-school uh, square-foot gardening. The key is uh, all of it works. Straw bale gardens. We just had a, a guy on about straw bale gardens. And I tried to put some straw bale gardens in, and, and they were a complete failure, honestly. Um, I'm not blaming the method, though. Um, I wasn't here for some critical components of it, even though I think I explained to my caretaker what to do. Maybe I did, maybe I didn't. Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I got in a hurry. I did start it in the heat of summer. That was probably not good. Looking at the bales right now, I think that I maybe used too much water, even though I thought I did what he said, the guy said to do, etc. So... All of these methods work. I'm not see. That's the thing. Well, the reason I'm even bringing the straw bells up is some of y'all asked for an update. But so I did something, and generally when I do something to grow food, it works. Uh, you guys have seen me grow food out of a bag, um, and this didn't work for me. The reason I won't say it doesn't work is because there's millions of people all over the damn world doing it, and it works for them. There's a Facebook group with like 200,000 people posting pictures every day of their successful straw bell gardens. So almost every method derived of growing vegetables in a garden-like environment, a homestead-like environment, works. 
If it didn't, nobody would do it. And the problem that we have when we get myopic here is you get people looking at my wicking beds going, I don't understand. I just plant stuff in the ground. Why are you using all that extra material? Why are you using that blah, 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 blah. That's plastic. It's killing the earth. Whatever. All right. Okay, so they live in New Jersey, the Garden State, and they have soil that they could dig a hole 50 feet and not find a single rock. It's black as night, full of worms, and they're in a temperate climate where, it, where if it go, in the summer, if it goes two weeks without raining, people start calling it drought. I live on the edge of a desert on top of a rock shelf. So what works for me here may not be the best solution for you. It probably can be made to work, but I agree with the person in New Jersey or Pennsylvania or Ohio that lives on a, you know, on a piece of property that used to be farm field before they turned into suburbs that has beautiful soil, or at least the potential to make beautiful soil, and good rainfall and all of that, with why would you? You might have a reason... It might be because your lawn's really your 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 property's really really small, and the place that you have sun is paved, right? But if if you have open dirt that you can just do an in ground garden in a lot of places, why would you do it? I agree. So my point here is to find what works for you. There are some things that I think probably make sense anywhere. I think a small aquaponics system with at least one ebb and flow bed. That's your classic aquaponics uh, garden bed where the water fills up real slow and then dumps out, and you either got lava rock or something called leka, which looks like little clay marbles or something like that in the bed. And the reason I say that is for regrowing things like green onions and celery and for cloning. You can clone so fast in an ebb and flow bed, and the roots that you develop in a few days are ridiculous. So if you're someone that grows tomatoes, but you end up fighting blight a lot, and your solution to the tomato is, I'm going to keep taking clean suckers that don't have blight and rooting them and replant so I have this ongoing, you know, escaping early blight thing going on, extend my tomato harvest, then you drop them into a, an ebb and flow bed, and you get roots like you've never seen before. You, know, you can get tomato slips to, I'm sorry, sweet potato slips to root in, in, it almost seems like five minutes. It's like two days, but, I mean, It just seems ridiculous how fast you get this aggressive rooting, uh, the ability to propagate, and then to grow certain things out of season for you. I can grow greens a lot later in the year that I can't grow um, in the ground or even in a wicking bed in aquaponics because the cool water uh, extends the, the cool temperatures necessary to grow things like cilantro, for instance. So there, there, there's a place for maybe taking some of these little specialized techniques and tweaking them in. But you should, for the majority of what you're going to grow, do whatever works best for you based on your time, your space, your budget, and your environment. So that's how I want you to think about, do I put in raised beds? Do I just put in-ground beds? Do I put in raised beds that are just humps instead of squared off with uh, lumber? Do I use uh, wicking beds like Jack? Do I do uh, full-on aquaponics? You do what works best for you. What I really want to talk to you today, though, about is the crops that people should consider. Because this is what I've, I've found over the years, and I, I'm guilty of it myself. People want to grow all kinds of weird shit no one's ever seen. And, you know, every Tom, Dick, and Harry grows beans, tomatoes, peppers, eggplant, stuff like that, right? And, and there's a reason. Number one, when you go to a grocery store... Understand that for all the beating up we do on modern agriculture, those people grow the stuff that people buy, and people buy the stuff because they eat it, right? So when 
When you walk into a grocery store and you see all the stuff that people generally grow there, there's a reason. Number two is because it's most of it's either easy to grow or has become easy to grow. So even plants that can be really finicky, like tomatoes, for instance, with uh, blight and forsythium wilt and stuff like that, the, because they're so popular, a lot of work has gone into developing disease-resistant varieties. So whatever the plague is for you, if you put a little bit of time and research into it, like we talked about last week, uh, you could probably find disease-resistant varieties of them. Uh, number three, almost all of them have some way that they can be stored long term. Uh, some, and we'll talk about storage methods today, so we won't dig into that. But there's there's probably some way that if you grow more than you can ever use, you can save them. So when you're not gardening because it's 17 degrees below zero out, you still have the ability to partake in the work that you did last summer. Okay, so I and I, I mentioned a couple in there, but I, I really think when we start looking at things everybody should grow. And understand, I won't name it. You're going to have some pet thing you think you should grow that's not going to be in this list because if I, if I put everything that, that I, I could fit on this list in there, this should be three hours long. But beans is, is one I think everybody should look at growing. And I'm going to just, I'm going to make a note addition here and say beans and peas. And when I say peas, I say peas the way a southern boy says peas. You know, you got your sweet peas and your snow peas, but you got your black-eyed peas, right? <laughs> you got your purple hole peas. You got you just keep going on if you want to there. Like so, whether we're talking about uh, a southern variety pea, we're talking about a winter pea, we're talking—I don't care what it is—I'm talking about peas and beans in general. And with that said, I think that the place that people should probably put the majority of their effort is going to be not in something that you would store as a dry bean or a dry pea. I know in some climates, in some places, you, you can grow so many like you know, red cow peas or purple hole peas, it's ridiculous, and that's fine. Uh, my buddy's dad down in Louisiana, that guy, I swear to God, that he could corner the market on purple hole peas, and they're really good. So if, you're, if that's you, you can take this however you want to, but I think if you're doing small, intensive management... Um, when you look at this, it makes sense to grow things like your edible pod peas and your green beans, wax beans, pole beans, etc., where the whole component is edible. For one reason, almost all of them actually make a good dry bean product. So if you end up with way more than you ever thought you would and you kind of let it get away from you, you can go ahead and take that. But it's a much larger yield. If you think about a nice big green bean, and how much is there? And if you let that dry up and then only take the matured beans out of the pod and you look at the two side by side, you get a much better yield. On that, I realized I kind of skipped ahead a bullet point here on you. So let me back up. Before I went into these crops, I wanted to talk about things that don't grow and the reasons that don't grow them. Dry bean products is one that I'm not going to say 100% because there are certain beans that really great and they're easy to grow and you can grow a lot of them without a lot of effort and they make a good dry bean product. But in general, if you like you are not going to see me growing pinto beans. When I can go down and buy high quality organic dry pinto bean for a dollar a pound and do no more work than take the scoop and stick it down in a bin and measure it myself and put it on the scale. Um, and, and this may, you know, there may be some bias here. I eat a lot less carbohydrates than I do proteins and fats. 
uh, in my particular diet, but I think even if I even if I ate a lot of beans and rice and grain, for a dry version of those products, I'm going to rely on a food system that is that has worked every efficiency out to grow them efficiently and inexpensively. And even if you're looking at organic product, um, even or like like amaranth. I can go down to one of the local shops here, and I can buy a clamshell with a pound of golden amaranth in it. It's organic for like, I think it's like $1.89 or $1.99. Do you know how long it takes to winnow out a pound of amaranth seed? By the way, I use that as seed and as a food product as well. So uh, even some of the ancient grains now, they've become so widely available and so reasonably affordable, especially if you don't live on them amaranth and quinoa and stuff like that. Uh, I don't really buy wheat at all, but if I was going to, I would I would buy it. Uh, rice, I don't do a little rice. I did make some crawfish etouffee uh, for today, and I'm going to have after I'm done with the show, and I'm going to have a little bit of jasmine rice in that. I'm not growing rice. I'm not doing any of that stuff. The stuff that is the bulk products that the, the, the you can buy uh, inexpensively, I think if you're building a pantry and then you're going to go and homestead, that you're going to get a better bang for your buck on the more the stuff that you generally buy in the produce section versus the center of the grocery store. All right. So again, beans. Uh, I'm really big on those being a good uh, crop, and I'll come back to these when I talk about storage methods because beans also have uh, like almost every way there is to store uh, will work for beans. Next is tomatoes. Tomatoes are something I have a love-hate relationship with because of how much issues we have with blight in this climate uh, and also for sam well, which just is like tomato cancer. But yet, even with losing plants, I get a... It's about right now that I'll pick my last tomatoes of the season when everybody else in the country is just getting started. But I'll just get a buttload of tomatoes from like early April, like right around April Fool's Day, all the way through the 4th of July. Um, I actually have some tomatoes out in my aviary right now that when I finally said, you know what, these vines are coming down to make room for something else, and I, I cut those vines and put them down in big old green tomatoes on them, and I just cut the section of the vine with that cluster on them, and I just set them in the beds, and they just ripen as they see fit. And so they're still ripening even though the vines are out of the ground. Uh, tomatoes are not a high-calorie crop. But they are a good nutrient crop, and they are a crop that can be used to cook so many things. They also have a, a bunch of different ways to preserve them that we'll talk about in a bit. Peppers, maybe I'm biased, but I mean, in my climate, I can grow peppers the way my grandfather grew tomatoes in Pennsylvania. I mean, I, David, my buddy David calls me the pepper whisperer. He's like, it's ridiculous. It's like peppers everywhere of every variety, and they're all different colors, and they just grow, and nothing ever goes wrong with them. So that puts me there, but... You know, if you can grow a bell pepper, you can grow an Anaheim chili. And if you can grow an Anaheim chili, you can grow a jalapeno. And if you can grow a jalapeno, you can grow a Tabasco. So peppers give us this crop that's a straight-up food crop. It's also a spice and seasoning when we turn it into something like a chili powder. Um, and it's incredibly abundant and, again, easy to store. So while, again, we're at a crop that is very poor as a, as a caloric crop, is actually getting our calories from it, but yet we have so much versatility that does for us. The next one is a very maligned crop, something that a lot of people tend to hate 
Many people that hate it have never had it prepared in a way that would make them not hate it. I had a good friend named Kurt that passed away before I even started this show. Uh, but he, he hated government about as much as I did, and he had a thing he called eggplant theory. And the way he described eggplant theory was this. I hate eggplant, and I don't want to eat it. The government takes my money, and then they use it to feed me eggplant, which I don't want, and tell me I should be grateful for it. And what, of course, he meant was government programs. He doesn't want things like that. Uh, throwing that aside, uh, I understand why people don't like eggplant. In fact, for many years, I didn't think I liked eggplant either. The only eggplant I ever had was eggplant parmesan, which was just completely smothered in parmesan cheese and sauce that my one grandmother used to make. And I didn't even hate that. I just was like, what's the point? All I got here is tomato and some breading and some cheese. I might as well just put some veal in there, and I'll actually like what's inside it. Um, and she was my Italian grandmother versus my Ukrainian grandmother. She was a pretty good cook, but when it came to eggplant, she kind of annihilated it. Uh, so I didn't think I liked eggplant either. And then one day I was at a, 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 it was either a Turkish or Middle Eastern place or something like that. And the guy orders baba ganoush as part of like an appetizer. Oh, this is really good. What is this? It's baba ganoush. I said, well, blah, 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 blah. What the hell does that mean? He's like, oh, they make it out of eggplant. The hell you say? I was like, this is really good. He goes, yeah. He starts telling me eggplant's good. So I tell him, well, I grew some eggplant and it tasted like ass. And I don't like that, so I'm not going to do it no more. He said, did you salt it? And I said, What? He said, if you don't salt eggplant and take the excess moisture off it, it tastes like, well, mushy crap out of an ashtray. I said, that's exactly what it tastes like. So he's like, well, don't do that. So then I learned that when you're preparing eggplant, what you need to do is you slice it into the sizes you're going to use. You sprinkle it liberally with salt and put it in something like a colander or on some paper towel And you drain a lot of moisture off of it. If you're using a larger variety, like an Italian big old giant classic eggplant, you might even reach and squeeze that, that excess moisture out of it until it's kind of like a sponge. Well, then when you cook it, it tastes like whatever the hell you put on it. It's got a slightly sweet flavor, but you want, what do you want? Well, what does it taste like? What do you want it to taste like? You want red curry? You want yellow curry? You, you, you want green curry? You want teriyaki? You want some soy? You kind of a Moroccan thing? You know, you want a tomato garden vegetable flavor? You want a chicken flavor? What do you want? It's a sponge. You take the water out of it, and it will pull whatever flavor you put back into it. And when I learned now, oh, I'm going to try some eggplant. Then I learned, and these aren't really good for making the baba ganoush thing, which I've never done yet, and I really need to grow some classic eggplant and make some baba ganoushes. But I learned about these uh, uh, Japanese varieties of eggplants, like Ishiban. And these are very long, slender eggplants. And basically, you just slice them up like a pepperoni thick and salt. And you don't have to salt them. They, they do okay without being salted, but they're so much better if you still salt them. And you salt those, you just throw them in and cook them. And I've done them roasted on freaking grilled pizza. And, I mean, just you, you, whatever, again, whatever you add to it, that's what they taste like. So I was always like, man, you know, I need to grow some eggplants. So this year I grew a couple... Ishiban plants, and I'm getting some eggplants off them, and finally got my wife to try it. She's like, oh, this is great. I'm like, duh. And uh, my only lamentation was they probably don't store well. I don't have any way to store them. Turns out they dehydrate quite well. There's even a thing called eggplant jerky. Jury's out on that because I haven't tried it yet. But the fact that you can dehydrate eggplant, rehydrate it, and get a suitable eggplant for 
uh, doing stir fries and stuff means I have to try it, and I now lament that I didn't plant more. So eggplant, even if you think you hate it, and I'm gonna, this is a chance to get something in here for you. If you're not sure about something, and then some crazy guy on a podcast says, hey, if you put salt on this stuff, you'll like it. That doesn't mean you'll like it. It means that you might like it, and maybe the reason you didn't like it was because you didn't know how to cook it. Before you go growing a whole bunch of it and finding out you hate it, go down to the grocery store, buy yourself one, and try what that crazy guy said. Look up some recipes and play with it. Once you decide, yes, I do like this, then add it to what you're doing. Next, I think everybody should be growing some variety of squash or squashes or squash eye or, or edible gourds. Um, it's a long-term storable crop. I mentioned this when we had Rob Greenfield on last week, but even crops that we think of as being a summer squash, when you let zucchini get big, like twice the size of what they sell it in a store of or a little even bigger, maybe three times that size, without getting stupid where it's like a baseball bat, um, it stores incredibly well. And my favorite way to make zucchini squash, then, is to take um, uh, a, a peeler and do, like, long, thick, uh, like, almost like linguine-type slices off of it, or use a julienne peeler and get more like an angel hair pasta off of it and what have you. Take it all the way down until you start to go into the seeds, and then you're kind of done. And that's why I like growing big ones to do that with. You salt that and drain them kind of like the eggplant, and you get a really great low-carb noodle. But I think that it's really a good idea to grow some sort of a true winter squash as well. The, the, the sweet spot in between them, if you can grow them in quantity without dealing with too much squash vine borer problems, uh, is called Trumbachino zucchini. And those are designed to either be a full-on winter squash or eaten younger as a summer squash. And I'm growing those this year again. I'm really, really happy with them. But I also think going to a truly dedicated winter squash gives you a long-term storable staple crop with a reasonable carbohydrate yield. Um, Rob mentioned Seminole Pumpkin, and I had heard that several times on his channel, and, and my biggest issue here is uh, squash vine borer, uh, along with squash bugs. But squash bugs are something that, like, if you grow a really good, healthy plant, they can kill a bunch of leaves and you still get a bunch of squash. Vine borers are the devil. Vine borers are a moth that kind of looks like a cross between a moth and a wasp. And they lay eggs on your squash, and those eggs hatch into little bitty bitty tiny worms. They look like little bitty itty bitty tiny maggots. And those little bitty itty maggots make a little hole in the stem of your squash, and they go inside there. And they start eating, and they grow in a great big ugly fat maggot looking things. And by the time they're about ready to hatch, your whole squash plant just dies because the entire um, core of your vines is just gone. It's just disintegrated. It's nothingness. Well, I was like, you know, I bet you that if there'd be a place where vine borers would be a problem, considering they really like hot climates, Florida would be the case. So if he grew that many seminal pumpkins, I wonder. So I did a little research with some ag extension organizations for Florida and Georgia and it turns out that the seminal pumpkin is incredibly resistant to vine borers. Uh, unlike the butternut, which is a little bit tougher to grow in our southern climates, the, the seminal pumpkin uh, loves southern climates, stores well in southern climates. So I think that there's probably some, you know, 
ex expanded Mason-Dixon line somewhere that, like, if you're south of there, you should be looking to Seminole Pumpkin, and if you're north of there, you should probably be looking to Butternut, kind of as your gold standard. And if you're going to grow any other squash as a main staple uh, storage crop, it should do at least that good or better if it's going to replace it. So uh, there's, your thought, there's my thoughts on that. Next is sweet potato, and Rob mentioned this as well. I've always loved sweet potato. Uh, one of the things I love about sweet potato is its versatility as a vegetable. It's good in stews. It's good as a fry. I'm going to tell you the, the way to make a, a sweet potato fries and actually get the texture you're looking for in a French fry is to fry them twice. So you run your oil, 350 is kind of the perfect spot to fry it. You can even fry them at 375. Um fry them until they float and they're pretty much done but they're going to be that limp thing that sweet potato fries always do to you take them out and drain them and let them cool to where they're at least cool enough that you'd be like I really don't want to eat them anymore okay you see what I'm saying like you know how french fries are like they're good they're good they're okay and then they're like Ugh. let them cool they can go all the way cold but at least that cool so you're looking at 10-15 minutes put them back in the oil and fry them a second time. That works with regular potatoes, but it, with sweet potatoes, it's almost a requirement. And they puff up and get all pillowy, and it's all very, very good. So I've always loved sweet potato for that. It, roasted uh, sweet potatoes are good. Uh, wrapped up in full and just thrown on the grill with butter and salt. I mean, and especially when I discovered the Japanese sweet potatoes, the purples with the really thin skins and the kind of yellow to white golden flesh that tastes kind of somewhere halfway between a regular like Idaho potato and a sweet potato. Like, oh my God, everything's going for it. And, you know, then about, it was about 10 years ago, right about the time I started this show, I found out, hey, you can eat the greens. What? Because potato greens make you sick. Everybody knows that. Well, that's, you know, Irish potatoes. But even though potatoes aren't Irish, right? They're a nightshade. A sweet potato is not a nightshade, right? You can eat the green. It's okay. So they're like, oh, yeah. I like, oh, pull a leaf off of the thing and chew it up. I don't really like that. It's okay. I guess if it was mixed with a bunch of other shit in a salad, it'd be all right. It's got a little bit of a okra-like thing going on in the background. Not much, but a little bit of it. It's a little mealy. I don't know. Nah. Yeah. Why don't you cook it, stupid? <laughs> so... Uh, we'll get a whole bunch of them together, get the pan nice and hot with some butter and garlic in it, and just wilt them in there and set that on a plate and eat it as a side. Whoa, okay, wait a minute. It tastes like spinach. It's almost identical to spinach, and I can grow it all summer long. And if I just save one potato, I can do it again next year, make slips and make more and... I can just take some slips off at the end of the season and put them in a pot and bring it in like a house plant. And I'm ahead of the game at the next year with making slips, and it's just it's like there's no reason not to grow it now. And then if you live in the right climate, like where I live, you can often just really heavily mulch on top of your sweet potato beds, and just leave them in the ground through the winter. You want some sweet potatoes? You just go out and pull them out of the ground. No work in ground storage. I really recommend that you consider sweet potatoes uh, as a staple crop. Uh, greens. Now, you know, I just mentioned that the, one of the beauties of sweet potatoes is they give me greens when I really can't grow them due to heat. Uh, but I think that the greens are one of the greatest and most overlooked crops that we can grow. 
Um, and we're talking about annuals today more than perennials, so I'm sticking to that. But Swiss chard and beets are two that I think people just don't, don't grow enough of. Um, a Swiss chard variety I really recommend you look into is called Ford Hork Giant. Ford Hork Giant. Um, it looks like Pak Choi, if you're familiar with Pak Choi, except it's a lot bigger. Like, it looks so much like Pak Choi. I've had people go, are you sure? That's, yeah, I, I planted it. I know what it is. It is the best-tasting Swiss chard. It's kind of a, a white, cream-colored stalk, really dark green and leaf. Grows really big. Overwinters, I've seen it overwinter in Zone 7. Uh, it probably would overwinter in Zone 6 with a little bit of protection. Um, and so you get about two years out of it before it wants to go to seed on you. So that's a lot of production from a plant. Um, beets, I think, are great because, you know, we we think very one-dimensional in America. So we think if we grow beets, if you're going to eat beet greens, you can, we kind of think it's poor people food or something, and we really shouldn't because it tastes just like chard, which is excellent. The people grow for the greens themselves and don't get a root. But what we think of is you, you pull your beets and then you cut your greens off. Well, with, when you're growing your beets, you can constantly be cutting those um, greens, using the greens, and then eventually let it have enough greens to fully develop and then get a root yield. And, you know, the the root yield then has a, 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 a really great storage option with pickling that many people are familiar with. But it really can be used like red beets are really great to add color and kind of a, a seasoning and a flair to other things. Like, you take some shredded red beets and you use that when you do a real horseradish and you make kind of this pink horseradish. It's freaking awesome. Um, you know, everybody's familiar with spinach and lettuce, but I think everybody should be growing it. I mean, these are two kind of your dynamite, uh, nutrient density crops. They make your salads work and everything. And if you live in a lot of the country, you grow one or both most of the year. If you live in the south, you're going to hit a time where it's really difficult. That's where you might want to consider some deep water aquaponics or something like that with some shade cloth to extend that portion of your, your, your season. Um, the advantage to me with spinach over lettuce is I guess you could dehydrate lettuce, but I don't want to. Dehydrated spinach has a myriad of uses. Uh, next up, amaranth. Um, I should have dehydrated amaranth this year. I had so much amaranth. I fed it to the ducks. The ducks were pooping because I had the, the red amaranth. The ducks were pooping red in the pools. looked like they were bleeding. Uh, they quit eating it. They're like, well, why anymore? Stop it. Uh, I ate it till I, I couldn't eat no more. Um, and it was just still coming as a green instead of as a grain crop. And it is incredible. For a leaf crop, it's very, very high in protein. It tastes fantastic. It looks great. Um, so amaranth, kales and cabbage. Um, everybody's big into kale now. Kale this, kale that. Uh, and I think one of the most underrated ways to use kale is as a slaw or as a kraut. It, it, kale makes a pretty good uh, version of sauerkraut, but it makes a really good like broccoli, kale, carrot, shredded, and a you know kind of a light, not overly wet, some semi dry slaw, a little bit of vinegar uh, to give you that crunch and that that balance of acidity. Fantastic for it. But kale can be frozen, kale can be dehydrated, and as such, it is great as ingredient in soups and stews. Cabbage, of course, being one of the staple crops of the world. Uh, almost every culture has some version of, of, of a, a cabbage that they grow uh, heavily. 
and some version of a, a pickled or fermented cabbage, a, a kimchi in, in Asia, uh, uh, a classic sauerkraut in, in Germany, Bavaria, etc. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a crop that one of, one of Rome's emperors, when he finished his time, decided he didn't want to be emperor anymore and moved off uh, to, the, uh, to the country to live out his days. Uh, famously said something along the lines he held two cabbages up and said in growing these I have done more uh, than when I was the emperor uh, so cabbage is just there's probably a variety that will grow where you are at least at some time of the year and it has a lot of uh, utility and it's one of those plants that again I think that a lot of what was done with it was seen as poor people food and as we've uh, matured as a society and become more affluent as a society, we have kind of turned our back on some of these things that we, we viewed as poor people's food when they're, they're fantastic. So the guy that won't grow a cabbage goes out to the taco place and raves about how good the taco is. And one of the keys of the taco was this cabbage slaw that was on the taco that he doesn't even think about. Um, kraut, again, any kind of a fermented cabbage has so much flavor that it brings to the party, whether it's a classic like a pork and sauerkraut that's like simmered, Uh, or it's just like added to a sandwich or added to something else. So cabbage, I think we should look. And there's so many greens I can't name today that are overlooked. And we should always be looking at, is there something that adds to that for us that we generally don't think of? Um, I have under replants and regrowth green onion and celery. Uh, but celery is a classic that I'll, I'll drag into this. Celery is stalks. When you grow celery and you're not blanching it to try to make it like grocery store celery, you get so much more flavor out of the stalks. They're usually smaller, more intense. But the green leaves of celery are fantastic. I grow the hell out of nasturtiums. Uh, these are you know, kind of a flower that I really thought of as an ornamental. And I grow them up until about mid-June, and they start to like, I hate you, it's too hot here, goodbye, I don't want you anymore. And they kind of go away. But up until then, I mean, nasturtium greens and nasturtium blossoms are just fantastic in salads. They have this peppery taste. I grow uh, in my aquaponics systems. I grow um, a watercress, both from seed. And sometimes if you're at the grocery store, you'll see like a little plug of living watercress. If you have an aquaponics system, talk. To the most, here's the most important thing to be able to do this and have it work out for you. Talk to your grocer and find out what day they get new product in, specifically that one. And go that day after the time he tells you that the shelves have been stocked. And, you know, get, get, your, um, get your, your package from the back because they always put it to the front. And get the freshest one you can. Take that home immediately and, and pull the plug apart into two or three pieces and shove it uh, into your uh, ebb and flow bed in your aquaponics system. And once it, it'll look like crap at first, but once it comes back and it starts to get dark green and start growing, you just take pinches of it. And you can have a whole bed covered in watercress in, in just a few weeks. So that's that's something to definitely you know look at as as a way to incorporate more greens into your diet. Greens are something that we used to put a lot into our diet with. We got a lot of our nutrients, not our calories, but nutrients from it. And again, we started looking at it as kind of down the nose at it. Uh, next up, a plant that a lot of people don't grow that I really think they should, and the people that do you generally just use it as a fertility and cover crop, is daikon radish. Daikon radish is so easy to grow. I've grown it here, and I've grown it in Pennsylvania. You know, I know Nick Ferguson's grown it in Louisiana. I know people grow it in California. I know people grow it in Washington State. I know people grow it in Florida. 
I mean, I don't know what more you could ask for, right? Uh, a plant that will grow that diverse uh, a climate. And it might grow better in certain times of the year or certain micro niches on your property, but it'll grow. And it is a good fertility crop because if you take a garden bed and you just say, I'm not going to have a, a fall-winter garden, and you just take a handful of daikon radish seeds and you just sprinkle them on that garden bed, throw some mulch on it, and let them come up, and they grow straight into winter for you, And after they get nice and big and fat in the ground, you just take like a scythe or a swish or whatever, you just cut the tops off of them and let them rot in the ground. It's like somebody came out with a post hole digger and dug a whole bunch of holes in your garden and filled them up with handfuls of worm castings for you for about five minutes of work. That's what you got. So they're an incredible crop for that, but they're a staple crop in Asia as an edible crop. And they have a lot of great ways that they preserve well. So that's another thing that you can look at. They store fairly well as it is, but they're great pickled and fermented as well. Um, and if you let them go to seed, and you should, they'll put these little pods on it, look like almost like little beans or little peas. And even if you're not... I, I, see, I could grow the hell out of like cherry bell radish or French breakfast or something. I don't like it. It's too strong. Those little pods that come off a of daikon... They're good in salads, they're good in stir-fries, and they're amazing. They have this very faint, if, if you like, let's say, radish microgreen, but you're not a big fan of eating a, 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 a bulb of a radish, you'll like these things. The daikon itself is a lot more mild than your typical radishes, and if you do something with it, like take a julienne peeler and make strips of it and blend that into some sort of a ferment or a slaw or what have you, Uh, it has a very pleasing flavor, even to people that generally don't like regular radish. That's why I put it. Regular, plain, old, everyday potatoes. There's probably a variety, a size, a type that will work for you in your climate. Everybody likes potatoes. There's a million ways to make them. They're a staple crop of the world. I try to keep carbs down, but I eat potatoes from time to time. Um, so I would, you know, just going to throw out maybe those. Uh, cucumbers. Uh, cucumber is the plant that you generally end up with so much yield over you don't know what to do and if you don't like pickles you're not sure what to do um, one of the things we love to do is make cucumber salsa and all we do for that is you take your cucumber and seed it I don't. most people seed cucumber all the time I usually don't I don't know what the problem with eating cucumber seed pulp is but for a salsa it's too wet so you strip out your cucumber slice it up in little cubes mix it with like tomatoes uh, some jalapenos and some green onion, and a little bit of mint, uh, some cilantro. It's, it's pretty amazing. Uh, add a little bit of uh, a lime juice to cut it with some acid. Uh, that's good. And then making like a, a tzatziki, uh, Greek yogurt kind of sauce out of cucumber is another good way to go, or just a sliced cucumber salad. But you, generally, unless you like to pickle cucumbers, you might want to just stick to buying them or only growing a little bit of them because it, if you do them successfully – Like, oh, my God, what do I do? You go out and, like, there's, like, three little cucumbers on a vine. You're like, okay, they should be ready in a couple days. You go out the next day, and they're, like, big enough to pick. You forget a day. You go out there, and they're, like, giant cucumbers everywhere. So it's one of those ones that you might end up with too much. And then last, I do think we should think about replanting. Um, if you buy celery in a grocery store, don't cut it off the heart. Don't cut it flat at the bottom. Pull your stalks. And leave like your last four or five, your celery heart. I know it tastes really good, but leave it like a plant 
and put it into the ground. Ebb and flow beds with aquaponics, it really works good, but they'll grow just about anywhere. And once that, once it goes from like that really light color to a bright green, it is very, very frost tolerant. In most of the country, you know, I'm not, I'm not talking tundra here, but in a lot of the country, it'll grow right through winter and not die for you. Uh, I've had temperatures last year with um, celery uh, regrowth in my aquaponics beds unprotected, 17 degrees, and it lived. It didn't even look like anything happened to it. So I'm just saying it's got a lot of resiliency for that. Uh, green onion, um, if you have to buy green onion, this is my opinion. Buy your green onion. Get a container that you grow onions in. Get a garden bed, whatever. Buy more than you need and plant them immediately and cut them from there as you need them. Would you rather store them in the drawer in the bottom of your refrigerator where if you forget them about a week they turn into mush or in your garden or your aquaponics or whatever that a week later if you forgot about them they're just bigger and better than they were before? And I grew them to the point where they all went to seed. I don't let them go to seed to see what happens. By the way, I don't taste good to eat anymore. I'm just going to say it. Uh, but, I mean, that's how long I maintain them and continuously cut and recut them. Uh, so those are just all, like, staple crops. Um, I want to talk about preserving them here and, and kind of some of my favorite methods and what they work best for. My favorite overall method, because of its ease in doing it in small batches as necessary as dehydrating. For dehydrating, I use an Excalibur dehydrator, and I just shouldn't use anything else. Um, if you don't want to spend the money on an Excalibur, I understand it. Just buy a cheap, under $50 dehydrator then. Because it doesn't matter if it's not an Excalibur, you might as well go cheap. Um, dehydrating, fantastic for tomatoes. It's actually fantastic for a lot of greens. Swiss chards, uh, beet greens amaranth, spinach, all of that stuff dehydrates well. What's it going to work for then? Oh, rehydrated in omelets, it's really good. Soups and stews. And almost any vegetable that dehydrates well, uh, that you like the flavor of anyway, can be then ground into a vegetable powder. Those can be used to, uh, to thicken and season soups and stews and make basically vegetable broths, instant vegetable broths. But the other thing that they do really well is it, I've talked about making yogurt cheese or lebna before. Uh, so you make up some yogurt cheese and you blend that into it. And if you want to know how to do that, just, just go to the site and search for yogurt cheese. You'll find plenty of information on how to do that. Uh, basically, it's just strained yogurt over a day and, and allowed to, to ferment a little bit more and get a little tangy. Uh, but uh, my buddy David is the one to turn me on to that. Just vegetable powders mixed into your yogurt. And like the greens and the sweet pepper and the tomato are fantastic for that. As I said, I just found out that supposedly you can dehydrate um, eggplant really well. Beans, ah, I love hate relationship with dehydrating beans. Uh, I'll save my favorite way for dehydrating beans for a bit. You can do it if you need to. I'll, I'll just put it that way. Uh, but the the thing I love about dehydration again is like so. Give me an example right now. I just went out and did some major overhaul in my aviary garden, and I got the last of the tomatoes, and I. I picked about five pounds of cherry tomatoes and just didn't eat five pounds of cherry tomatoes right now. That's not going to be worth canning, in my opinion. It's a lot of work for not that much canned tomatoes. And it's canning tomatoes to me is a pain in the ass. It really is. Um, all I did was hang out with my grandson and cut them in half. 
Put them on a dehydrator tray, threw them in there. Made three trays of dehydrated tomatoes. They were on there for about 18 hours. I just brought them in this morning before I started my podcast, and they made about one quart ball jar of dehydrated tomato. That's a lot of flavor. That's a lot of nutrient. That's a lot of versatility. I can do anything from rehydrate them and make salsa in the winter with tomatoes from the garden from last summer in them uh, to soak them in some oil and, and, and do basically a sun-dried tomato and oil thing that goes really good on like a pizza or in a pasta. I mean, there's just so much you can do with them. And they just taste fantastic to eat out of hand as well. But when I did that, there were also a good, I don't know, three pounds of Anaheim chilies. Nice, beautiful, big, red Anaheim chili peppers. Well, they make a great chili powder to make chili with, right? So I just pulled those off and brought them in, too. And so right now there's tomatoes and peppers in the dehydrator. It's only maybe 50% full. I don't care. They don't use that much electricity. So the fact that I can batch different things at the same time without a lot of work is why I love it so much. Uh, next is canning. I don't do a lot of canning. Um, I just traded my All-American pressure canner uh, on the barter blanket because I don't use it anymore. I just don't. And uh, I got the carry canner, and it's one step push a button, and I did a whole show on uh, you know, the, the way that you can do your canning with that where it doesn't have to be a lot of work, where you can kind of batch it out. You make you know, four quarts at a time, and it seems like a lot of work, but some things it's really easy to do. It's really fast. So canning, I like. What I don't like about canning is unless it's like a salsa or something like that where we're doing a water bath canning, when we have to pressure can something, we are going to overcook it. So it has a limited utility. So, I, For instance, I mentioned green beans as a stable crop. I don't want to can green beans. I'm not saying I won't ever do it, but there's better ways to preserve a green bean. Next is flash freezing. And this is the one that I think is the most beneficial to the most people because everybody's got a freezer if you understand how to do it and if you understand there's two categories that things go in for freezing one is we just cut it up and we freeze it peppers work that way you freeze a pepper though it is never going to taste like a fresh pepper ever again it's good for soups and stews and chilies and then cooking in eggs and stuff like that right um, but it's all you got to do now let's look at something else green beans Probably the best way there is to preserve a green bean so that when you throw it in a stir-fry, it's that nice bright green color and it has a little bit of tooth to it. It tastes fresh, uh, other than cooking it fresh, is to freeze it. But if you take your green beans, you wash them up all nice and clean, and you cut up the little ends off of them and cut them into size and freeze them, and you take them out of the freezer, they will never ever get soft. The longer you cook them, the tougher they'll get. It'll be like a stem. I imagine if you cook them long enough, maybe they'll fall apart. But I did that when I was a little kid, and I didn't know why. My grandma told me about a thing called blanching. So there's an enzymic process that goes on with certain vegetables that if you put them in the freezer, it will continue, and it will basically ruin them in one way or another. So when you're freezing a vegetable, the first thing you need to know is, does this thing require blanching or not? All right? So, that's it pretty easy to find out. How do you blanch? It'll be something like boil it in hot water for a minute uh, or steam it for two minutes or whatever. And you can find what's, you just put vegetable blanching table 
In Google, you'll find tables that tell you the vegetable, and if you're steaming or boiling, how long to do it. You do that, and you immediately put them into a cold water bath. That stops the cooking. Now when you freeze them, you're going to get that, you know, when you go to the grocery store and you buy, you know, bird's eye or whatever, and the bright green green beans come out, and you throw them in the pan, you saute them just long enough to cook them, they have that nice fresh taste, then they'll be that way. Now, the next thing you need to ask yourself is why, self, why do I go and I get my green beans out of the freezer and they're in a big, big giant block, and if I want, you know, a handful, I can't get that. I get the whole pack or I get nothing. But when I own the bird's eye stuff, I can stick my hand in there and pull out like five of them if that's all I want for a stir fry. Flash freezing. Now, they do it differently than we do, but the way you're going to do this to make anything you freeze where you can take out just what you want. Get yourself a cookie sheet. Lay something down nonstick, like nonstick foil or parchment paper, wax paper, whatever, down on the bottom. Spread it out on a single layer. Stick it in your freezer till it's frozen solid. Then repackage it into whatever bag or uh, container you want and immediately get it back in the freezer. And then what you'll end up with is something you can reach in and pull out what you want to use is by the portion. Broccoli is another one to do this with. Blanch it, freeze it, so much better. Um, and one of the things you guys that own vacuum sealers can look into, they make vacuum seal bags that are also Ziploc bags. So let's say we break our frozen green beans down into half-pound portions. We're not always going to use a half-pound. So now we open up that half-pound portion, we pull out a quarter-pound, we throw it in our stir-fry, Ziploc back, throw it back in the freezer. So that's something to look at, too. Um, fermenting. Fermenting is something you know I've done whole shows on. The things I like to do it with most are your cabbages and then your high-flavor things, garlic, uh, onion. I like to make escabeche, which is uh, uh, peppers, uh, tomatoes, and carrots fermented. Uh, it's a very, uh, very uh, typical Mexican version of that that you'll find in the really good Mexican restaurants. Generally, when you get a really good escabeche in a Mexican restaurant, this kind of place when you order um, a margarita, instead of bringing you a fishbowl, they bring you like a, a low-ball glass, you know, like a little small cocktail like a margarita is supposed to. And But usually the Mexican places, what you'll get is a pickled escabeche where they actually just do it with vinegar to be quicker. The really good hole-in-the-wall places, they'll have a fermented. And so fermenting, again, is something... Um, I have a book on it called Fermented Vegetables that I'll put a link in the show notes today that you can learn more about how to do it. But um, the radish is, as well is another thing. Uh, I didn't mention it today, but Jerusalem artichoke, uh, those are fantastic fermented. So like a fermented pickling process is basically what it is. And Jerusalem artichoke is one I should have included in Crops Everybody Should Grow. Uh, and they, they have a nickname, Fartichokes. Because people eat them, they get a lot of gas because the inulin in them that doesn't break down a uh, form of carbohydrate that causes that response. Um, when you ferment them, it does something, and that generally doesn't happen. So fermentation and pickling sort of kind of go together, but they're different. Pickling is just basically using something high acid to preserve the food. And the, the number one thing people use for that is vinegar. And I think one of the reasons that pickling is something people should learn how to do is people often confuse pickling and canning. You can pickle something and then can it. We can just pickle it and throw it in the refrigerator, and it lasts a daggone long time. And pickling, if you just Google quick pickle recipes, you can pickle something in about 15 minutes, and then it will, it will preserve very, very well. 
Pickling does not have to be an all-day process like I think a lot of people do because, again, they think of pickles as in cucumbers and canning, and now we're pickling and we're water bath canning, and it's an ordeal where we can quick pickle fast. We can even take pickle juice from a commercial bot pickles and use it in our quick pickling. So that's something I definitely think that you should look into learning about. And then root cellaring and or just what I call shelf storage. So we talked about this a lot with Rob last week, Rob Greenfield. You know, he's got the seminal pumpkin sitting on a shelf in his tiny house, and they're just sitting there, and they're a year old. So that's why I think that that's, that's one of the things we need to look at in a crop. How can we, what can we grow that we can just store on a shelf? And it doesn't necessarily have to be able to store until next season. A lot of squashes, edible gourds, and stuff like that, maybe they won't store for a year. But if they store for three or four months... And there's something we can time a harvest to where you get a pretty big harvest at the end of the season, especially we live in a climate with a long growing season. Let's say that we can, we can expect our first crop somewhere around Thanksgiving. And let's say somewhere around Halloween we get a big harvest of some sort of a crop the last four months. Let's, let's, let's calendar it out. We got, then we got November, December, January, February. We got, we're all the way out to the end of February. We're into March. Well, by March, we're starting to get wild greens. We're starting to get greens that we can grow. Uh, we're starting to get our early early coal crops like uh, Brussels sprouts or cabbages or broccoli or things like that, kale. Um, so we're actually bridging the gap with something without it having to be able to store for six, eight, nine months. Even four months in a long climate is really a solid way. So always be thinking about when you're picking the things you're going to grow. I, the reason I threw this together instead of breaking out this own show was that as you're growing something, if you, you're growing the right thing the right way, you should be able to produce more of it than you can use. And you need to be thinking about a, cor a correlating storage methodology that will allow that to be uh, used long term. And again... I really think for most people, the ones that you really need to, to, to drill down on are dehydration, flash freezing, fermenting, and pickling. Those are your four best. And then because your root cellaring or self-storage is you just know the thing does that. You know, garlic, you cut the top off and you dry it out and you can either braid it or you can uh, put it in a, an onion bag and hang it up and you're good, right, in a root cellar if you're lucky enough to have one. Um Cabbages do pretty well, even just stored that way for quite a while. Potatoes, etc. So that's more about just learning what you can do it with, the things you actually have to do something specific to beyond maybe giving them some time to dry out or what have you is the, those other ones. Uh, real quick, I want to finish up with a final thought here. Everything that we talked about you're, you're doing today, your success, then it comes down to fertility. And since we went longer than I planned even by breaking the show out, um, I'm going to go fast through this, and we'll probably revisit it uh, as we go through some of the things like composting and all. But number one, of course, is compost. You don't need a complex composting system. It may make sense at some point for you to decide, I want to do black soldier flies, or I want to do a three-bin system, or I want to do, I want to store up and get extra materials from other people and pick up leaves and do, you know, 18, 21-day rapid turn, high-heat compost system, or I want to... Man, composting, whatever. In the end, all you need is a wire cage that you can make out of a piece of like goat fence or horse fence that you make in a circle. And you set it somewhere in the shade and just throw all your shit in there until it's full. 
Then make another one and throw all your shit in there until it's full. And if you're like most people in most situations, by the time the second one's full, you can pull the top, you pull the first one off. It'll be about half full at that point as it goes down, and you'll have compost. You start filling it up again. I mean, it, it, it can be that simple. It can just be a pile somewhere. If you have chickens, you want to incorporate it. But just figure out a way to do something with all of your waste that will break down. If it will break down, it can and should go back to the garden. If nothing else, you can get a little container and put like your banana peels, your potato peels, your tea bags, all that stuff in it. So a small one that maybe you have to dump every other day, don't even compost. Not in the way we think of it, in a pile. Go out to your garden, pick a spot you haven't done it in a while, pull the mulch back, throw it on the ground, hole, and put the mulch back over it, and nature will take it from there. On the next thing is mulch. Mulch, 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 and mulch. Uh, pretty much your primary mulches are a, a mixed hardwood mulch or straw. And I prefer a mixed hardwood mulch most of the time. Most of the time. But some type of mulch to protect your soil. And next is actually protecting the soil beyond the mulch. So thinking about reducing erosion, building on contour, anything you can do to reduce wind and water and people, and pet, erosion, and compaction. So the biggest thing about having garden beds is not so much you have a garden bed to hold the soil in, but to keep the people out. You should Once you build a garden bed, you should never step on it unless there's a really compelling reason you had to. Never compact that soil ever again and let nature do what nature does to soil when it's kept mulched, it's kept in high fertility, and it's kept protected, and in a season or two, it, it will blow you away to look at soil six inches away from where you've been managing it and dig a hole there and look at the soil in your gardens. Even if you didn't bring a lot of material in, it will still just blow you away. Next, use good organic fertilizer. Um, I recommend Dr. Earth 444 uh, Gold. Uh, it's a solid fertilizer. It's our item of the day today, so I'll just tell you about it now. And remind you, you can always support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. But I have a multi-part uh, fertility program that involves this product, uh, Howard Garrett's Garrett Juice, uh, CalMag, and a iron, an iron-zinc uh, uh, both product, uh, one of each of those, and a fungal inoculation, and a few other things. And... I have put together this program of these products done the way that I describe them over years and years and years of doing this. And if you said, Jack, the shit is going to hit the fan and you're not going to be able to buy this stuff anymore. You have to do everything with compost and nature. But you can pick one out of all of the things you use right now and recommend. Just one. And you can stockpile the shit out of it where you have enough for 10 years. I would pick the Dr. Earth product. It's a 444 fertilizer, which means it gives me equal parts of my NPK, my nitrogen, my phosphorus, and my potassium. Okay, But it is loaded with beneficial microorganisms, including many of the uh, mycorrhizal fungi that are in the spe specified mycorrhizal fungi product that I recommend. It is the best. and But... I don't care what you use. I don't care if you go to Lowe's and you buy bone meal and blood meal and mix it together. I don't care if you go find any decent organic fertility uh, fertilizer. 
Don't be afraid to use it. Don't. Th- People say, well, all you need is compost. All you- <sighs> oh. Yeah, maybe. It depends. What is your soil type like? What is your climate like? What is your compost like? Where did you get it from? How old is it? What is the temperature when you're putting it on? You might be able to do everything you need with compost, but you only have the soil temperature conditions where the plant can really access that during certain parts of the year. And early in the season when your plants are trying to get started and the soil is cold, you don't have enough biological activity for them to be able to access the nutrients that are there. You need something that's bioavailable. So a good high nitrogen but well-balanced formula of NPK is something you should have and should be using and watch your plants. If everything's looking good and all of a sudden you look at your pepper plants, for instance, everything else looks fine, but your pepper plants just... They're not so bright green anymore. You know, get a shot glass and get your, before they all do it, right? When, like, you see a couple of them doing it, they're all going to. That's what it means. Get your bag of your fertilizer and take your little shot glass and just put a shot glass of fertilizer around each one and then slowly water them in because it's not all going to go. That's why I like a solid. It's going to take time to seep into the soil down through the mulch and all. Water them in a little bit every day over two weeks and watch them just explode again for you. And if people say, no, don't fertilize your peppers, you won't get any peppers. Bullshit. Fertile plants produce. Um, but definitely. And I'm going to say this here at the end. It's going to twerk some people off, but it's the truth. If you need it to get production this year and you don't have time to do everything all natural, use freaking 10, 10, 10 commercial fertilizer. Commercial fertilizer is not the devil. It might be a demon, but it's not the devil. And the reason it's a demon is because it tempts you to not do all the things you should do over time, and it lets you abuse your soil. If you use some commercial fertilizer, again, a 10-10-10 solid is probably the most versatile, and you just sprinkle a little bit of it here and there where your plants need a little bit of fertility, assuming fertility is their problem and not an illness, They'll perk right up, and they'll grow just great for you. And as long as you then continue the soil-building process, and if that's just your bridge to get there, it's not an herbicide, it's not a pesticide, it's not going to kill anything. Overuse of it is a terrible environmental crisis. As much as the farmers get yelled at for what they do to the oceans and the rivers, the people dumping this shit by the, the metric shit ton on their lawns, they're doing just as much to screw things up if not more in some ways, because they're closer to storm drains and stuff like this. But if you're talking about a little bitty bag that can sit on your freaking desk in your office, that you're using a small amount to spot apply to get through a certain season, or even a couple cups of the stuff that go into a 4x4 raised bed, it's not my first choice, but I'd rather you do that and have success then not do that and be miserable and not get a yield. As long as you continue the process of... Because it's not going to hurt your soil. It's not going to hurt your soil organisms. That's not what's ruining our cropland when people dump commercial fertilizer on it. Dumping it to the exclusion of doing the right things is what's doing that. So it's not my first choice, but it's far from my last resort. My last resort would be not doing this at all. So there you go. Uh, Final thoughts. Homesteading is something everybody can and should be doing on some level. 
If today you thought this all sounds like a lot of work, I don't really want to garden that much. I want other ways that my home can provide for me. We're going to continue this series. It will be at least a four-part series. I do hope you enjoyed today's show. As I said, when I talked about the Dark to Earth product, this is our product of the day. You can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Go there. No matter what you buy, you will help support us as long as you start your search there. Get on over to Amazon, see the deals of the day, look for whatever you want, and you will help us. The other way is by becoming a member. This show could not exist without people who are members of the MSB or Member Support Brigade, but it's not PBS. I'm not going to send you a shopping bag for $100 that you get for a dollar at the grocery store uh, You know, to, to not use a, a plastic bag or whatever. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to send you a coffee mug for $500 or something stupid like that. Here's how it works. It's $50 a year or 5 bucks a month you choose. You sign up online, and then you get access to a website. On the back end of that website are discounts to almost 80 companies. If you use half a dozen of them a year, every other month you use one. By the end of the year, if you do the math, you'll be like, I put like $85 bucks in my pocket, and I gave that dude $50. Bucks. So I made $35 and supported the show where I learned all this stuff. That's how it works. That's how it's designed to work. But if you do the math and you just think, you know what, the show's awesome, I'm willing to support it financially, it's about 18 cents an episode. With that, let's talk about our song of the day. Remember, we are in Make You Feel Old as Crap Week. Yeah, some of you are like, yeah, you can't do that to me, Jack. I'm like 26. Yeah, you'll get there someday, whippersnapper. Uh, no, those of you who grew up in the 70s and 80s like me, this is Feel Old as Crap Week but in a good way, with great music. Today's song is by one of the greatest bands of all time, Pink Floyd, and the song is Comfortably Numb. A song that's as popular as it is today, it's hard to believe that it came out in 1979, but it really did. Um, and you know, being in the late 70s, I talked about kind of the, the toll drugs must have taken on uh, you know, megastars uh, in, in the 70s yesterday. Um, everybody thinks this song's about drugs. And Roger Waters, who wrote it, said, no, it's not about drugs. Uh, it's about, when it, it, it's really two things. One is when he was a little kid, he got really, really sick and ran a fever about 105 degrees. And the way he felt during that. And there was another time as an adult, and there was a few times as adults where he had certain illnesses and stuff, he'd feel the same way and take him back to that. But one time in particular, um, he had hepatitis and didn't know it. And a doctor just thought he had a stomach bug or something like that and gave him some kind of medication for it, some kind of shot. And it was a little pinprick, right? Um, and when that happened, he uh, he ended up playing, a, I think it was in Philadelphia, and his hands were swollen up like balloons. That's where that line comes from. He couldn't even feel his hands trying to play music. and But no one even noticed any of the difficulties he had because of the rest of the band playing and how loud everybody was screaming and yelling, and everybody was happy anyway, even though he wasn't on his game fully, which I think has more than people realize at concerts when you think about what you can and can't hear at a concert. Um, so he was comfortably numb. He said a lot of people think the whole swollen hands thing's about masturbation. He has no idea why. I don't really either. I do understand why people would think this, this song's about drugs. Um, it sounds very much like a strung-out drug song. But if you think about it, when drugs are used to excess and create that strung out or just overly high or whatever it is feeling, it's not far off feeling like you do when you're really, really sick. In some ways, it's the same thing. 
This is one of those songs I think it means different things to different people. I've always loved it. I've always loved Pink Floyd. But how old do you feel when you think about the fact this song's 40 years old? One way to make yourself feel young again. Go out and turn that backyard into the homestead we were talking about today. Feed yourself with the most nutritious food you can get. And that's the food you grow right where you are. And even though you'll look at the song and go, it's 40 years, or listen to the song that's 40 years old, maybe you won't feel quite so old. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Smoke on the